You are listening to the Biz Rock Podcast with Dr. Vince Bantu and sponsored by the Jude 3 Project. We are so thankful for those who support the mission and vision of the Jude 3 Project to help us produce content such as the Biz Rock Podcast. If you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you could do so by going to jude3project.org and hitting that donate tab. You can either give by mail or give online. Thank you so much to our supporters. We appreciate you and we hope you enjoy today's episode. And so this visual reminder and all of this textual evidence shows us that again, that the bisrot of Jesus Christ is and always has been for all people. And it's especially important to emphasize the ways in which that the bisrot was spreading in other parts of the world that have been historically oppressed and whose Christian history has been denied and suppressed and neglected. And, and, and perhaps one of the best examples of that is the rich history of Christianity on the African continent. All right, well, hello everybody and welcome to the Jew 3 Project. Uh, my name is Vince Bantu and I am the host of the Bisrot Podcast. Uh, so welcome to the Bisrot Podcast. This is a specialized ministry of the Jude 3 Project whose mission is to equip the body of Christ and especially the black church and black community with knowing what we believe and why. And as a part of that mission, uh, as many of us know, for those of us who are believers, especially uh, in the black community, who engage in apologetics and sharing our faith uh, in Jesus, in our community, some of the biggest questions that we encounter have to do with ancient African identity uh, and the origins of black people and African ancient history, and also the relationship of that with Christianity and, and how those things interacted in antiquity and in the medieval period. And so in the Bisrod podcast, we are actually focusing in on questions relative to early African Christianity and the history of the growth of the Bisrot or the gospel, which is an ancient Ethiopic word for the gospel uh, on the African continent. And we do a mixture of conversations between myself and leading scholars on early and medieval African Christianity. Uh, but also we do episodes like this one where it's more of kind of a mini lecture where the goal is to help to uh, provide uh, a general survey of early African Christianity to, uh, to our community and into the church. And in this particular episode, uh, we are actually going to be focusing on the spread of Christianity across the African continent, further away from some of the areas of the continent that are more well-documented and more well-known. Uh, we know, uh, as you'll see in other episodes on this podcast, that Christianity was not only present, but it was the predominant religion along the whole North African coast in late antiquity, in modern-day Morocco, Tunisia, Algeria, Libya, Egypt, also along the Nile Valley in Egypt, as well as Nubia and Ethiopia uh, and modern-day Eritrea. So along the north and eastern part portions of the continent, uh, Christianity was not only present, but it was the dominant religion across late antiquity and even going into the medieval period in the Nile Valley. 
But I'm really excited about this episode because today we're going to delve into something that has really not been studied. It's a new area for me because even most of my academic background and writing and research has to do more with, again, the North and the Eastern communities, the Coptic, the Nubian, the Ethiopian churches that we that you will actually be able to see about in other episodes on this podcast. And again, those are more well-documented, more well-known. But an area of, of study that really has not been done um, very much in Christian uh, scholarship or even in just broader uh, historiography is exploring the connections that were made between the Christians of ancient Egypt, North Africa, Nubia, Ethiopia, and the churches that they built and the theology they developed. And how did those, how did those um, Christians connect with Africans in other parts of the continent, further to the West and also further to the South? So in this episode, we're gonna be exploring and looking at exciting evidence that has really been uh, really neglected and, and brushed under the rug. And we're gonna be elevating some historical evidence that shows that the Bisrot, uh, the gospel message of Jesus Christ did indeed spread uh, not only in the North and the East African coast, but all across the Southern, Western and, uh, and Central parts of the African continent. And so as we get started, I want to sh- I want to look at a, a text that actually came from Egypt and that was developed over many centuries, but it was finished in the 10th and 11th centuries called the History of the Patriarchs of Alexandria. And this text is a is a is an Egyptian Christian text that was written in uh, Coptic, the Egyptian language and in Arabic. And it tells the history of the popes or the leaders of Egypt. But in this excerpt, it actually talks it's it, it's in the midst of talking about a patriarch of Egypt named Joseph. Um, who would have been from the 8th and early 9th century, the, the leader of Egypt. And it talks about the spread of the Coptic or the Egyptian church in that time period. And it says that because of the abundance with which this good shepherd, talking about Abba Joseph, cared for his flock and sacrificed himself for his lambs, he ordained many bishops and dispatched them to every location under the throne of Lord Mark the Evangelist. So, you know, they, they say the throne of Mark refers to the patriarchate or the papal seat of Alexandria, which would have been historically attributed to the apostle Mark, who the Egyptian church and many other believers across the world and for centuries have believed that the, was the first evangelist into Egypt in the first century after the time of the acts of the apostles. And, and so, in, but, but, but notice how this text says that basically Alexandria or the, the Sea of Mark was not only the kind of the center of the Egyptian church, but is actually the center for the African church uh, across the continent, especially as it was known in the eighth and ninth century. So he names some regions here and says that that includes Africa uh, and the five cities and Karawan. So the, uh, so the five cities in Karawan would have been regions along the North African coast and the region known as Africa would have been just basically what we now call Tunisia. And so when, he's, when, when this text says Africa, it's just talking about modern Tunisia, not the whole continent, because then it goes on to say Tripoli as well, which would have also been in the Libyan area. But then it also says the region of Egypt, and then it says Ethiopia and Nubia, or Habesha and Nubat, or Nubia. And so that would have been the modern, Nubia refers to the modern Sudan, and Habesha refers to modern Ethiopia. And so basically, as I mentioned already, these regions that this text is naming are the more well-known regions along the North African coast and the Nile Valley. And Christianity was already the dominant religion 
it along, all along the Nile Valley. It was before along the North African coast. Uh, and according to this text, there were still some Christians there. We don't have a whole lot of evidence for Christianity after the rise of Islam uh, in the North African coast in, in what was Roman North Africa. But uh, according to this text, there were still some Christians there and it's claiming they would have been under the Egyptian church. But we know definitely that Nubia and Ethiopia, which were independent sub-Saharan African Christian nations, that they accepted Christianity, that they were uh, Christian nations and they were under the church of Egypt. So, uh, so, so in a way, this text is showing how the Egyptian church in many ways was kind of over all, almost all of Africa during the late antique and the medieval periods. Now, if we continue to, um, to go, we also see that the, the kings of Nubia and Ethiopia, which were independent nations, also had a complicated relationship where they were independent, but also they were under the ecclesiastical leadership of Alexandria in Egypt, even though the Egyptian church was actually under the political and military leadership of the Islamic caliphates that ruled in Egypt. So there was a complicated relationship where the Egyptian church was kind of over most of the African church, but they were politically subservient, whereas the Nubian and Ethiopian uh, kingdoms were actually politically independent, but were ecclesiastically or theologically under the Church of Egypt. And so we see that also from the Arabic history of the Patriarchs of Alexandria, the same text, where it actually talks about the, uh, one of the kings of Nubia named Kyriakos. And it says that those who were under the authority of Kyriakos, the king of the Nubians, uh, 13 dominated kings, uh, the kingdom and the country. So this text is saying that basically the king, the king of Nubia or in the medieval period also ruled over 13 other kingdoms that were around Nubia and, and that that king who ruled all those other surrounding kingdoms was a Christian. Uh, it says he was uh, he was the Orthodox Ethiopian king of Makuria. Now, we've talked about this in other episodes, but when they say Ethiopia, a lot of times, sometimes that will actually refer to actual Aksum or Ethiopia as we know it today. But sometimes it'll just be a larger kind of phrase to refer to black people. Uh, sometimes Nubians get called Ethiopians. And we see that in the Bible, actually, in Acts chapter eight. Uh, but it says that he was the Orthodox Ethiopian king of Makuria, which was the central Nubian kingdom. And he is the great king upon whom the crown has come down from heaven. He ruled all the way to the furthest southern parts of the earth, for he is the Greek king, the fourth of the kings of the earth. And that's kind of just an interesting little like play on uh, Daniel chapter two and, and chapter seven, where you get the visions of the four kings. And there this is just kind of a name that the Egyptian chronicler is giving. Uh, but that's not a, a title that Nubians would have given themselves. Um, the other kingdoms continuing are not able to challenge him and the king show him hospitality when he is in their country. So these are the other African kingdoms that are other that are largely unknown. But this text is claiming that the Nubian Christian king ruled other African kingdoms uh, around the, the area of modern Sudan. Um, and that they show him hospitality when he travels. So already we're getting into how Christianity spread from North and East Africa into other regions. Uh, and that was mainly through trade and, and also military conquest. Uh, but it says he is under the dominion of Mark the Evangelist. Again, the apostle Mark uh, that the throne of Alexandria is the recipient of. For the patriarch of the Jacobites in Egypt tells him what to do, along with the kings of Ethiopia and Nubia. And he has in his country an Orthodox bishop who the patriarch ordains as metropolitan. Then he ordains bishops and priests for the leader of that district. And when the metropolitan dies, the patriarch of Alexandria ordains a different one for them that he has chosen and ordained for them. So again, we're seeing from this, the picture of what was going on here again, of what we were talking about, how the Nubian and Ethiopian kingdoms were theologically under the Egyptian church, even though they were politically independent. 
Um, but also, I, I want to call attention to the fact that this text shows that the king of Nubia ruled what this, from an Egyptian perspective in the medieval period, would have been the ends of the earth, and that the Nubian, um, the Nubian uh, leadership spread and, and the Nubian kingdom and territory spread all across into other 13 different regions in Africa. So this shows that there indeed would have been a great deal of, of, of commerce and trade and contact between Christian Nubia uh, as well as Christian Ethiopia and other, other kingdoms of Africa as they were continuing uh, to develop. And, uh, and as I mentioned, sometimes this was through conquest. So I want to make a couple of comments about how Christianity, uh, how the Bisrot spread into the southern part of, of the African continent uh, before we get into the West. Because I'll start off to say that uh, as, as far as I'm aware, there's not a whole lot of evidence of Christianity really being on the ground in the southern uh, portion of the continent of Africa before the arrival of Europeans, whereas there is very clear evidence of it in the West. But before we get to that, even in the South, there is definitely evidence that there was contact and that there was trade going on. In fact, uh, there was a sixth century Christian Egyptian world traveler named Cosmos Indicopliuses that said that Christian Ethiopia was actually trading with a region that was known in his time as Barbaria, which would have been modern day Somalia and the Horn of Africa. And so Ethiopia was trading with other African nations to the south, and it was a Christian nation. So obviously these other kingdoms would have heard of Christianity through Christian Ethiopia. But not only that, but there was conquest that happened. Now this is jumping into uh, more into the 13th and 14th centuries, but there was a very prominent king of Ethiopia in the 13th century named Amdaseyon. And Amdaseyon conquered, he was a Christian king that conquered many other ethnic and cultural groups around Ethiopia in that time. And that would have also been a way that Christianity would have spread. Uh, in fact, there, were, uh, there was even religious change that was going on because that one of the, one, this next excerpt from the text that talks about his victories uh, actually mentions that there were some uh, ethnic groups that were conquered by Amdaseon that used to be Christian and had converted to Judaism. Uh, it says that he sent other battalions who were known as Demot, Sekalt, Gwender, and Hedya, men on horses and foot, powerful and expertly trained in combat, champions who have no equal in killing, with their commander, Begay Meder Segechristos, who sent them to attack the land of the rebels, who resemble the crucifying Jews, which are Semein, Wegera, Selemt, and Segede. Long ago, they were Christians, but now they have denied Christ like the, Jew, the crucifying Jews. So this text is basically saying that these other regions of Wegera, Selemt, and Segede were originally Christian at a time, and then by the time of this text in 13th century had converted to Judaism. But one of the things I want to draw our attention to is a couple of the regions that are mentioned, specifically Hedya and Demot, which, uh, as this modern map shows you, that these are regions that were further to the east, uh, to the west, and to the south of the Christian region of Ethiopia. Uh, Hedya in particular is still, even today, in that region of Ethiopia, is in the far south part of Ethiopia that borders Kenya. And so, in the 13th century, long before colonialism, you had a southern Ethiopian ethnic group that had made contact with Christianity, and even many of them became Christians, and that's a culture that was bordering right on modern Kenya. So it's likely that some of those people could have even migrated into Kenya, uh, long, again, long before the arrival of, the, of, of Europeans. 
But also Demut is another culture that was next to Ethiopia, further to the west, that was conquered by Ethiopia and actually was the site of one of the earliest Ethiopian missionaries. Um, and one of the most famous missionaries in Ethiopian history name was Tekla Hymenot. Tekla Hymenot also lived in the 14th century and he, uh, as uh, many of the Ethiopian Christian kings were conquering surrounding African people, Demut being one of the most famous, Tekla Haimano capitalized on that and went in and evangelized and even uh, converted many people, even the ruler of Demut to Christianity. Uh, and his Gadla, which is an Ethiopian style of literature that's unique to that culture, and it's a, it's a spiritual biography, uh, the Gadla of Takla Haimanot uh, gives the story about how he went into Demot and actually was originally persecuted but made many converts. It says that having arrived at the country of Demot, our father Takla Haimanot found a magistrate of the city, and his name was Kefera Wedim. And he spoke with him concerning matters of faith, or Haimanot, the sweetness of his words entered into his heart and he taught him the faith, the hymenote of the Trinity. And he caused him to abandon idol worship and he baptized him in the name of Christ and he gave him the name Gebra Wahid. Furthermore, he taught many and inclined their hearts towards the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So right here again, we have some of the spread of the Bisrat from Christian Ethiopia into Demut and into Hedya and other places on the African continent. A another thing I want to mention is that there was a, uh, like probably one of the furthest south that we have evidence for up to this point of there being Christians on the ground in Africa was an island named Socotra. Socotra still today is an island that's just off the, the tip of the Horn of Africa, uh, right away, uh, just a few miles off, uh, off the coast of Somalia. And multiple sources indicate that this island right off the coast of Somalia was full of Christians uh, from a very early uh, time period. And this is actually a, a much later 12th century uh, uh, historian, a uh, Muslim historian named Al-Adrisi uh, in his Kitab Al-Ruyar that mentions Socotra being full of Christians. Uh, Al-Adrisi Al says that about the island of Socotra, it is big, well-known, and covered with trees. Its best-known vegetable project is the tree that produces aloes and nowhere else exists, nor in the Hadramah, nor in the Yemen, nor in the Sahar, and nowhere else. Aloes that comes in beauty close to that of Socotra. This island is, as we have said, from the north and west side, close to the province of Yemen, from which it is a dependency and a resemblance con uh, confronting it on the, on the Bilad Azanj side are towns of Malindi and Mombasa. Most of the people on the island of Socotra are Christians. Now, one thing to point out, a couple of things to point out, first of all, is the is the mention there uh, that Al-Adrisi said that the inhabitants of Socotra were Christians. And Al-Adrisi wrote this centuries after Cosmos Indicopoliustes, the Egyptian traveler we mentioned earlier, also had went by Socotra and also noted that it was full of Christians. And uh, the, the, the type of Christianity that was thriving in Socotra was actually connected theologically to the Persian church of the East, which would have been doing liturgy in Syriac. So it wasn't a Western or a Greek form of Christianity. But also there were many Ethiopian uh, refugees and travelers in Socotra, and so it's also likely that Ethiopian Christianity would have thrived there as well. 
But also notice how the Aladrisi defines the geography of Socotra as being just on the other side of the, what he called the, the Bilad Az-Zanj. And Zanj was an Arabic word for black people. And the Zanj region was often used by Muslim historians to refer to the southeastern African coast of modern day Kenya, Tanzania, and Mozambique. And, and, that, that, and the people, the inhabitants were often referred to as Zanj. And so he says that Socotra is right across from the towns of Malindi and Mombasa. And we know that Malindi and Mombasa were early cities and, and regions in the so-called Zanj region that were heavily involved in the Indian Ocean trade with India, China, the Arabian Peninsula, and, uh, and as well as Egypt and the Roman Empire, but also Socotra was right in the middle of all of that traffic. And so, again, while we don't have evidence of Christians being on the ground in places like Mombasa and Malindi uh, and, 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 and Zanzibar, we do know for sure that they were in Socotra. Christians were, it was a predominantly Christian island, and that those people would have had regular contact and trade with Southeastern Africans in Malindi, Mombasa, Zanzibar, and other places. And, uh, and, and this, this next uh, excerpt from Al-Adrisi also talks a little bit about, again, not only the continued trade, but also Al-Adrisi mentions that this area that was called Barbaria, again, the Somali Horn of Africa, uh, he says was actually under Ethiopian rule. And, and remember, kings like Amda Sayom and Dawit I and Zari Yaqob did indeed conquer parts of Somalia. And that also would indicate the continued spread of the Bisrat further south into Africa. The text from Aladrisi says this section talking about Barbaria consists of the description of a part of the Indian Sea and all the islands that are in it, in which people of different races live. In the south of the countries in this section is the rest of the countries of the black Kafirs and several countries close to the sea. Our intention is to describe all those things with clarity. So we say that the sea is the Indian Sea and on its shore is situated the town of Beduna at the extremity of the country of the Kafirs. Unbelievers who have no revealed religion. This is, would have been the way to refer to people who practice traditional African religion and were not Muslims uh, or Christians or Jews. But they take standing stones, Aladrisi says, which they anoint with fish oil and to which they prostrate themselves in worship. That high is the stupidity in which these people live and the absurdity of their beliefs. So you see, and this is actually just the tip of the iceberg when you get into medieval, uh, you know, his, like Islamic, you know, historians and travelers in Africa and some of the grotesquely racist things that they say about sub-Saharan Africans. Uh, this is, this is, you know, it gets way worse. Uh, but, but here's the, here's the crucial part is for our purposes. Part of this country obeys the Berber king and the rest, the Ethiopian one. So again, notice how Aladrisi is saying that Socotra is an island full of Christians with regular contact to the Swahili coast of Southeast Africa, but also that Barbaria, modern day Somalia, was also under Ethiopian rule, which we also know from many other sources. So all of this evidence shows us that again, while we don't have any concrete evidence of Christians on the ground in, in the southern region of, of the African continent, we know that the people and the urbanized civilizations that initially developed along the Southeast African coast, which is often called the Swahili coast or Kilwa, um, that they had regular trade with Christian regions like Ethiopia and Socotra, and they in turn continued to trade with more inland kingdoms like the great Zimbabwe kingdom and also Mapungumbwe, which were some of the earliest inland kingdoms that developed through the gold trade that developed along the Swahili coast. So again, Christians were definitely in contact uh, and they were at least in the Horn of Africa and Socotra and also in regular contact with the Southeastern African coast. 
Now, let's talk uh, in our final portion, let's talk about the spread of the Bisrot going further west from places like Nubia and Egypt and Ethiopia and into Central and West Africa. When we talk about Central Africa, first of all, uh, one of the kingdoms that comes up is the kingdom of the Daju. The kingdom of the Daju or the Taju, as it comes up in this quote, was a Central African kingdom in the area of modern day Western Sudan and also parts of Chad. And it was neighboring with Nubia. And it was mainly thriving in the 8th and 9th and 10th centuries. And it comes up in a lot of the early Islamic histories of the continent of Africa. But this quote from Al-Adrisi also mentions that there was actually military conflict between Nubia, which was Christian, and the Daju, which had practiced primarily traditional African religion. So let's read about from Al-Adrisi about the conflict that occurred between Nubia and the Taju. It says, from the city of Manan to the city of, the, of Tajua, that's the Daju, is 13 phases and it is the capital of the Tajua land. They are pagans and they do not believe in anything. Again, that's, that's a way of saying they're not Muslim or Christian or Jewish. Their land neighbors the land of Nubia, and in their land is the city of Samna. This is a small city. A pilgrim to the city of, of Kawar reported that the magistrate of Bilak overtook Samna. He was the commander under the king of Nubia, and he burned it, and he decimated it, and he dispersed their citizens to the furthest regions. It is still in ruins. Samna is six phases from the city of Tajua, and from the city of Tajua to the city of Nuba, uh, Nubia are 18 phases. It is from it, the, the city of Nubia, probably talking about Dongola, that the Nubians originate and by it that they are known. So right here we see that there was already conflict and contact between Christian Nubia and surrounding nations. We read from the Egyptian Christian sources in this time period that Nubia had kingdoms around it that were subservient to it. And so this uh, Daju kingdom may very well have been one of them, but also it's important to note that the Daju kingdom was very active in the originating of the Trans-Saharan trade. We talked about the Indian Ocean trade, but also the Trans-Saharan trade was, was uh, just starting to develop at this time and the Daju were some, were one, was one of the first kingdoms next to Nubia that had began to develop. And so because they had been conquered by Nubia, it's reasonable to understand and, and believe that Christianity, which was the dominant religion of Nubia, would have also made contact with and spread into the Daju. And uh, to get a bit of a, a, a better understanding of the trans-Saharan slave trade uh, and just trade in general, a great example of this would be Benjamin of Tudela and to also understand how interconnected the northern half of the continent really was uh, through this particular trade. Uh, Benjamin of Tudela was a Spanish Jewish traveler who traveled all through Africa and wrote his uh, wrote his observations in a travel log, and he de and he defined and talked about the connections that were being made between Nubia across the Saharan trade as well as going into the North African coast. See, because when you look up the Trans-Saharan trade, even as you'll see in this image that I put there, a lot of the commerce and travel were happening in areas where Islam was the dominant religion in Egypt, along the North African coast, and then from northwestern Africa down into Western Africa into the developing kingdoms like Songhai, Mali and Ghana. Uh, but the, what's often left out is the commerce and travel that happened 
below the Sahara or below the Sahel, further south and straight east-west between Nubia, Christian Nubia, and going west into Central and West Africa. And so Benjamin of Tudela gives us a sense of how Nubia was a part of this trade as well, um, which would again been a, uh, which would have been an increase of Christian presence across this predominantly Islamic trade across the North, uh, North African continent. Uh, he says, from Aswan to Alwa, which would have been the southern part of Nubian, the Nubian region, is 12 days, and in it are 300 Jews. From there, caravans travel a distance of 50 days through the desert called the Sahara to the city of Zavila, which is Havila in the land of Ghana. Now, it's interesting that he calls Havila in the land of Ghana because Havila, as Benjamin of Tula understood, it was actually on the Mediterranean coast in North Africa. So it's interesting that he's referring to that as the land of Ghana, but he's probably thinking of the just the entire region south of the North African coast or south of the Sahara, which uh, Islamic and, and, and Jewish travelers across Africa would often call the collectively would call Ghana. Uh, so not the modern nation or even the later empire of Ghana, but oftentimes just, you know, West Africa and even Central Africa are called Ghana. Another name that comes up even more often, though, is Sudan. All of these things by Islamic travelers are often called Sudan. Um, but he, but again, he's so we can understand then that he's talking about travel that happened between Christian Nubia all the way going northwest throughout the Sahara and going up to the North African coast. So it says the desert is characterized by mountains of sand and when the wind rises, it covers the caravans with sand and the entire caravan dies under the sand. The survivors carry with them iron, copper, all sorts of fruits and all sorts of plants and salt. And they bring from there gold and precious stones. And this land is on the western border of Cush, which is known as Ethiopia. Come back to this caravans uh, with uh, they come back to this with caravans of gold. So notice how Benjamin of Tudela is saying that the land of Ghana, which he just kind of collectively is clearly referring to as all of Western and Central Africa, is bordering on the west of the land of Cush uh, and then also Ethiopia. So according to Benjamin, you have a Christian sub-Saharan African nation of Nubia and also Ethiopia that are right next to, according to him, the land of Ghana and that they are, they are engaging in extensive trade with one another, you know, with different metals and salt and foods. And so you would know that in the midst of this, all of this trade, that these Nubian and Ethiopian folks especially are also telling people about Christianity and, and Africans are learning about Christianity uh, primarily from other Africans in Nubia and in Ethiopia. Uh, as, and, and now, uh, as we kind of bring it to a close, I want to show the uh, actual evidence that displays how Christian, Christianity uh, was not only in conversation or in contact between uh, the East, Eastern Africa and Central and Western Africa, but that there were already Christians on the ground in both Central and in Western Africa. Ibn Hawqal was also a medieval Arab, uh, Arab historian and traveler in Africa, and he actually mentions Christians who were in other regions outside of Nubia boarding right next to it, the region that would later be known as Daju, uh, and then that which also bordered on Kanem. So Ibn Hawqal says that to the west of the White Nile, there is a people known under the name of the Mountaineers, or Ibn Hawqal calls them the uh, Al-Jabiliyun. They are subjects to the king of Dongola, which would have been the capital of Nubia. So he's saying that these uh, Jabiliyun are under the king of Nubia, um, as we've already seen. He rules over Makura, which again, Makura was the central region of Nubia, where Dongola was the capital, and Maris. 
And Maris lies from the border of Aswan to the extremity of the region of Makura. So I wonder if maybe he's thinking about Mauritania or something. I'm, uh, it's not really clear what he means by Maris there. But with Makuri and Dongola and Nubia, we, we're on firmer ground. But between Awa and the nation known as the Mountaineers, the Jabaliyun, is a sandy desert as far as the country of the Amkal. It is a large region with countless communities and diverse people groups that speak many different languages that cannot be counted and their wealth cannot be exhausted. They are known as Ahadi. They practice Christianity and are subjects of the king of Awa. Between them and the king of Awa is five days journey, three of which are desert. So Ibn Harqal is telling us that over a five day desert filled journey to the west, of Nubia was another Christian people group that he calls the Jabaliyun, that themselves were subject to Nubia. So we see that Christianity was spreading in some cases through trade and in some cases through conquest. And right there on the right, there's actually uh, an example of a potsherd that was actually found uh, in the far western Sudan region, uh, in, in the area that would have been known as Daju in that time period, which would have been, again, in, in modern Chad or western Sudan. And you see that it has a Christian cross with a fish on it and a potsherd that was found uh, in this region that shows visually as well as textually how Christianity was spreading further, from the west, uh, further west from Nubia. And then finally, um, probably one of the strongest pieces of evidence and also going further west is coming in the early 14th century from another Egyptian Muslim historian named Ibn al-Dawadari. And Ibn al-Dawadari writes a chronicle of the, that focuses on, again, the Trans-Saharan trade, and he talks, in a, in a particular portion, talks about the famous king Mansa Musa. Mansa Musa was one of the, probably the most well-known kings of the Mali Empire, or the Empire of Ghana, that developed uh, all across the western a region of Africa that spread all along the Gold Coast. And this was at a time when he was known as the wealthiest person in the world because he still controlled the gold trade that we've seen mentioned here. And Mansa Musa made a famous pilgrimage because he was a Muslim and Mali was a predominantly Muslim empire at this time. It wasn't originally, but the Almoravids came in in the 10th century and enforced Islam into West Africa uh, through the sword. And so it was a predominantly Islamic empire. Uh, and so the uh, Mansa Musa made a pilgrimage as a Muslim king uh, going all the way to Mecca and went up north and then along the North African coast and then went through Egypt. And in Egypt, he, some of his uh, company talked with Ibn al-Wadawi, the historian, and actually shared about the nature of, of the Mali Empire in West Africa and talked a little bit about it. And one of the fascinating things that Ibn al-Dawadari, a Muslim Egyptian historian, noted was that Mansa Musa and his crew that went with him on this Hajj reported that there were actually Christians in West Africa, Christians in modern day Ghana, Togo, Benin, Senegal, Nigeria. The, this Mali empire would have been expansive all across the Western uh, region of the African continent. And he mentions that there were Christians present. Not only that, but he mentions that the Christians actually lived in the area that were, had the most gold producing and that he actually allowed the Christians to retain control of the gold rich land in West Africa in the Mali empire. Look, look what Ibn al-Dawadari says. He says, I heard the magistrate, Fakhr al-Din, inspector of the victorious army say, I asked the king of the Takrur, and Takrur was a, uh, was a common uh, Arab Muslim name to refer to the, the kind of the region of Ghana uh, and the Mali Empire in this time period. And so he says, I asked the king of the Takrur, who is Mansa Musa, what is the source like where the gold grows among them? 
Then he said, it is not in our land, which is the property of the Muslims. Rather, it is in the land that is the property of the Christians of Takrur. We send to take from them a collection that is due to us and is required of them. These are special lands that produce gold in this way. They are small pieces of various textures. Some are like small rings. Some are like carob seeds and so on. The magistrate Fakr al-Din replied saying, why don't you conquer the land by force? He said, if we conquer them and take it, it does not produce anything. We have done this in various ways, but we have not seen anything in it. But when it returns to them, them being the Christians, when it returns to them, it produces according to its average. This is a fascinating dynamic, and this is perhaps an increase in the dominance of the Christians. And so again, this is indicating that not only were there Christians in West Africa, all the way to the Atlantic coast, but not only that, but in the Mali empire of Mansa Musa, who was one of the wealthiest people in the world who controlled the gold trade and was bringing gold and spreading it all throughout Egypt and the Middle East, but that that gold and the source where it grows in West Africa was actually in the Christian region. And according to this Muslim 14th century source, that whenever the Muslim leadership of the Mali empire tried to take the gold rich land from the Christians, that the gold would stop growing. And, that, and, and then when they would return it back to the Christians, it would grow again. So they would just allow the Christians to retain control of the gold-rich land of West Africa, and the Muslims would retain the other parts of the land. So the, the significance of this cannot be overestimated, that Christians were in West Africa already in the early 1300s. This is over a century before Europeans ever made it to the Gold Coast and before the slave castles were built, that Christianity had already made its way and had taken firm root in West Africa. And not only in West Africa, but there was a trail of Christianity leading all the way back where? All the way back east to Nubia, which was a Christian nation. And so what that means is that not only were Christians present in Central and West Africa long before colonialism, but the source of their Christianity was actually other African Christians. Now, we, we don't have time to get into talking about Congolese Christianity, which is another fascinating uh, example of early African Christianity. But we know that even though the kingdom of the Congo in Central Africa was a Christian nation and they were Christian by their own free will, nobody colonized them or forced them to be, Christian, uh, to be Christians, that they, their first contact with Christianity was Europeans, was the Portuguese in the 1400s. But unlike the example of the kingdom of the Congo, the Christians of Ghana or the Mali Empire and the Christians of Daju or the Jabaliyun, their Christianity came through the trans-Saharan trade and through contact with Nubian Christians, which was an independent Christian nation. So the gospel, the Bisrat spread all across and touched various parts of Southern and Central and West Africa to varying degrees long before colonialism took place. And it would have likely taken on even deeper root if not for some of the issues with European Christians suppressing the indigenous Christianity of Egypt and Nubia and Ethiopia that had took place. But thanks be to God, in his providence that the gospel, the Bisrat, continued to spread all throughout the continent of Africa. And the evidence is right here. And it's, it's not often very much promoted uh, or and it's often suppressed, but it is right here for us to see this. Um, and it's clear as day and it's factual. So as I end and close this particular episode, I want to end with a, an image that I love. It's on the cover of my book, Multitude of All Peoples. Um, 
but also it comes from Nubia, and, and I think it visually encapsulates uh, the story and the narrative that we're telling here today, which again on this episode is being told perhaps for one of the first time. Uh, this is again an area of study that has really uh, not been looked at before. But in uh, Nubia, in the, in, the, in the capital of the central region of Nubia, Makuria, the capital city of Dongola, there was a monastery that was built by the Christians in the sixth century. And in that monastery, there was a painting that was in a particular room that seemed to be some kind of hospital room. And there was a nativity painting on the wall of this room in the monastery that had Mary and baby Jesus and angels. But next to Mary and baby Jesus, there was another painting of a collection of people that are likely not Nubian. Uh, these are people who are shouting uh, celebrations, some of them in the Nubian language that are giving praise to God for the birth of Jesus Christ and worshiping Jesus. And then there are others that are shouting in an unidentified language. And that, that among other things, indicates that this collection of African people who are worshiping Jesus Christ clearly are not Nubian and they speak a different language and also they have a different style of clothing. Some of them are wearing loincloths and using percussive instruments and some of them even have animal masks on as you see on the figure on the right, right there. This is uh, clothing and again, language that Nubians didn't understand and also um, traditions and, and, uh, and, and things that people would put and wear that were not common to Nubia. And so this painting is clearly showing Africans that were from further to the west of Nubia, perhaps from the Daju kingdom, perhaps from Kanem, perhaps the region that, that Ibn Hawqa refers to as the Jabaliyun. But what is clear is that these are Africans who are not from Nubia and that are wearing traditional sub-Saharan African garb and engaging in sub-Saharan African traditions and doing it to the glory of Jesus Christ. So this is a visual indication of how Christian Nubia continued to connect with Africans further to the West. And as they did, some of them became Christians. And it was Christian, it was, it was a Christian evangeliz evangelization happening from other Africans. And so this visual reminder and all of this textual evidence shows us that again, that the bisrot of Jesus Christ is and always has been for all people. And it's especially important to emphasize the ways in which that the bisrot was spreading in other parts of the world that have been historically oppressed and whose Christian history has been denied and suppressed and neglected. And, and, and perhaps one of the best examples of that is the rich history of Christianity on the African continent. But not only in the more well-known areas of North Africa, of Augustine, or Egypt, of the Coptic Church, or the Nubian uh, Christian Kingdom, or the rich Ethiopian Christianity that developed, but that those same African Christians were connecting with and spreading the gospel, the Bisrat message, all across the African continent. So thank you so much for your time. I, I know this was a lot of information, but as I said, this is the main focus of my research right now. So there are a couple of articles that uh, I'll be putting this together with and will be available for reading. Uh, and it'll be also definitely in future books and publications that come out. But I hope that at least in video form that this will be helpful and that you can continue to share this information with people in your community, in your church, in your context. And not only in this episode, but all the episodes of the Bisrot podcast where we are here to help believers know what they believe and why. 
So thank you very much uh, for being with us on this episode of the Bisra Podcast. And we look forward to seeing you on the next episode. And, uh, and, and shout out to the Jude 3 Project. Uh, thank you so much for being with us and God bless you all. Amen. Thank you for listening to the BizRock Podcast with Dr. Vince Bontu, sponsored by the Jude 3 Project. Remember to rate and subscribe wherever you stream your favorite podcast. And remember, if you want to help support the mission and vision of the Jude 3 Project to help black Christians know what they believe and why through this podcast or other avenues, you could do so by going to jude3project.org and hitting that donate tab to give by mail or to give online. Every gift helps equipped, and we're so thankful for your support and your prayers. We appreciate you. And until next time, grace and peace and God bless.